0: say sorry to all the journalists who called this week and i didn't return calls i know you
1: understand why i felt so bad uh, and i apologized immediately and uh... first of all i want to say i'm
0: sorry because uh, it's divisive time you become about french and english in our country and i
2: certainly didn't intend to go down that path uh... we at sportsnet have apologized uh, I apologize i apologize sorry I'm sorry i owe you an apology too that's the big thing that i want to emphasize and i and i
1: take full responsibility for wilting or just being Allowing myself to be told what I should think. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of Roxy Fever. I'm your host, Jackson McDonald. Joining me, as
3: always. Hey guys, what ho- What? Uh, <laughs> did somebody oh, interrupt? You go first, or do I? Usually, <laughs> <laughs> Love that we're on episode fifty-four, <laughs> and we still don't remember. It has how. always been me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> wow. We give Elliot a bit of control over the episode, and <laughs> uh, this, yeah. is <laughs> this is what happens.
2: This is what happens. I'm Vyasaran. And I'm Elliot
3: Hoyt. Our next guest
1: is a big fat smarty pants who thinks he's smarter than everybody else and has a big fancy degree from some university. If you're a doctor, why
3: don't you like fix
1: my little meek?
0: (laughs) (laughs) First, I got to fix your podcast, I think. That's right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You may know him as blogger, author, teacher, mother, secret lover. It's Tyler Shipley. Tyler,
0: how are you doing? (laughs) Oh, guys, it's good to be here. I'm glad I'm, you know, here for such a professional opening, too. You know. Yeah, this must be a real just...
1: contrast with uh, Alberta
0: Advantage, which you just saw. <laughs> <on. laughs> a
3: show that has fourteen hosts uh managed to get it down but the three of us couldn't
0: no it's okay this is like the Rushmore. this is on my Rushmore. roxy is Aww. one of my favorite, Aww. uh my favorite pods uh roxy and and uh the broadcast. those are the two yes before i die have to get done the
1: two <laughs> so. the two genders truly really. um
0: <laughs> it really <laughs> it is <yeah. laughs> uh
1: literally um but, uh, yeah, no, we've been meaning to have Tyler on for a long time.
3: Uh, oh, yeah, like, yeah, Tyler, you've been on our Rushmore absolutely, like, from, yeah. from the get-go. I know I didn't
1: mention him technically on my Rushmore, but he's been a, a day one uh, desired guest, mainly to talk about our old friend Ron McClain. Um And Vias. just so we're clear here, we're not talking about the guy who wrote American Pie. I know that was something that you <laughs> were uh, under the impression of until recently we were talking about
2: <laughs> it. Also not the guy who does the vinyl cafe.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, Ron McLean, the host of <laughs> Coach's corner. So anything you prepared on uh, the lyrics to American pie or um, the day the music died or anything like that, just make sure to purge those notes before we uh, get into the end of the episode. But
3: this is, this is me crumpling paper. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there we go. Tyler, we got, was, we got Foley effect. Tyler
1: wanted to know what Foley you were going to be doing in the background of the episode this time. So there's, oh, yeah. there's our answer. Crumpling paper. Um, yeah. I was hoping
0: for the typewriter,
1: but (laughs) it's in the other room. Um, But the main reason, or at least the primary reason, to have Tyler on, and I'm glad that we waited until this moment to have him on, is because Tyler, you've got a new book out, um, which has a very long title that I don't remember.
3: (laughs) Oh, I got it. It's uh, called Canada in the World Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination. Oh, was I? Yeah, that's,
1: right. that's correct. No, oh, you got Boom. it. You nailed it. I, I don't have any notes in front of me today because uh, I had a week. <laughs> we won't get into
2: it. Honestly, uh, I read this book like last week and I definitely thought it was Settler colonialism. <laughs> the title. I mean, that's legit because Settler
0: colonialism is usually the term, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I kind of yeah. messed around with it. So
2: yeah,
3: that's on me. No, I like it. Yeah. I think it's a wild. I also decision. love yeah. the, uh, the cover of the book is... Uh, actually, Tyler, do you want to explain what the, the cover of the book and uh, how the design worked for that?
0: Yeah, it was, was kind of cool. I mean, I I didn't really. It was a hard cover to to plot out because the book uh, spans you know three hundred years of history and the entire world, and and you know I I kept thinking anything that I choose is gonna it's gonna make it seem like it's of that time. Like if I put a picture of like Pierre Trudeau, it's gonna seem like you know, the book's about the seventies, but it's not, it's about this whole, so we went with a a map of Canada, but sort of flipped upside down, which, you know, it's kind of, um, well, it's maybe a bit uh, obvious, but it's kind of, you know, the idea is to kind of upset the standard story of what Canada is. Mm -hmm. and, um, And, you know, everything that you thought you knew about Canada, in many ways, it's like the opposite is true. And, so, yeah, that was kind of the idea of the cover. I think it ended up looking
2: nice. I, I like, like- rolls. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized that I have the exact map that you have in black and white, except in black and white on my wall behind me. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh,
3: I also, just to, like, continue introducing Tyler, I think most Canucks Twitter people or listeners of Roxy Fever might only know Tyler as... Uh, Canucks Army contributor, contributor to a few other, um, Canucks blogs, and also this team's, uh, biggest goldie head.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Goldobin watcher.
1: Uh, can I tell a funny story about, uh, Tyler actually from, from, uh, my Canucks Army days? So, kind of right around the time that COVID was happening, Tyler, what tyler pitched me a story and i don't even remember what the story was sorry tyler i have um it ended up not happening mainly because of covid i if i remember correctly and anyways um this was this somehow came up with one of the higher ups who was asking me about tyler and hilariously he like seemed really unsure about having tyler write something (laughs) and he was like oh yeah well, like what do you know about this guy like i don't know if he did that much for the site or whatever and just the entire time i'm i'm thinking to myself like if you just googled this guy you would see that he's literally a published author <laughs>
2: like, <laughs> worried about whether
1: or not he's qualified to write for you know the the same website that has like you know <laughs> i'm i won't even I'm, i won't get into it but you know what i mean <laughs> Is insert dumb article headline here, but
3: actually, yeah, what was the first piece that you wrote for for
0: Canucks army It's probably Goldie. I mean, I think I wrote like three articles about Goldie and two about (laughs) Reed Boucher. That's pretty much all I did. (laughs) But I I actually started, you know, it's funny because like all of the Canucks writing stuff started as this in, in the context of my life, it started as this kind of embarrassing secret like I didn't, I didn't tell my friends that I was like secretly writing for a Canucks blog, like, you know, but I was, but I was, and I, and I started with the Canuck way, which is um, Even worse than Canucks army somehow. <laughs> it's a, let's call it entry level, yes. you know? Um, and, but it was like, it was a lark. I was on Twitter. I was doing, I was fighting about the Canucks on Twitter anyways. And so I was like, well, fuck it. I might as well write for this blog. And I got the same, I got the same sort of, thing where I had to kind of go through this I would say remarkably rigorous process of kind of justifying you know that I had the chops <laughs> to write for
3: the Canucks. So I love the idea of you having to do like a comps exam <laughs> but, <laughs> no. but
0: for the Canucks blocking experience. Like a sample of my writing and you know.
3: name uh, yeah, 90 like, Canucks uh, bottom six players in history.
2: <laughs> Get 50 plus on the P- Passatobulus uh <coughs> Quiz. Yeah. It's yeah. a line mate quiz. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: yeah. Anyways, it all worked out. I, I wrote the, the Stadine's piece was,
0: was with the Canucks way. So that, that was a nice one. I think that was when people started to kind of uh, follow some of my Canucks writing and.
3: Yeah. Um, uh, that piece. I mean, we can talk about later. Cause like Jackson said in our chat earlier, vegetables before dessert today. Um, we <laughs> won't be right. talking about the Canucks until the second half of this episode, but Tyler wrote this uh, article about the Sedines That is probably my favorite thing written about the Canucks. Uh, or, or like hockey article ever it and it elevates the city into this other level that if anybody like I send that article to people who don't pay attention to hockey when they wonder like what's so special about these two guys and I'm trying I'm trying to explain to them that it's not just that these two guys were the best at their in their career for uh like a five-year stretch there but that they are the best example of a, of, of humans in a sport out there so, like, well, chop, props to you, man. That was, that was such a good piece.
1: It is. It's yeah. excellent. Um, Roxy Fever it has been called many things. It's been called uh, Group Therapy for Left Wing Hockey Fans. It's been called an Anti-Canucks Canucks Podcast. It's also been called a Podcast for No One, um, which is my personal <laughs> favorite. But um, when we had Harrison Mooney on, who's also working on a book right now, it was because we wanted to zoom out a little bit. And this show is not just about it's not really just about hockey. It's about trying to place hockey within um, Canada and to a lesser extent, North America's sort of political and cultural landscape. And so one thing that really interests me about this book, which I haven't had the chance to read yet, but is on my Christmas list, is that. It's very much about myth making and how Canada's vision of itself and what it is globally, like the role it plays globally, is so different from the reality. And so, I guess the first thing I would be interested in hearing from you, Tyler, is what made you want to write this book? Like, was there a, a specific inciting moment of, I can't believe people don't? know this
0: about Canada or was it just a more general thing? I think it was more general. I think it was, I mean, I think what, what at the heart of it was just all these years of, of living in Canadian culture and swimming in it. And especially because I'm like, you know, a hockey fan um, and, and hockey is such a, like a central part of the construction of Canadian culture and, Canadians' vision of themselves, and I grew up in that, and I and I accepted all of it, right? I mean, you know, we're going to talk about Ron and Don later. I mean, Ron and Don meant something to me as a kid mm. because I thought it was a reflection of what Canada was, and and in some ways it is, but not the way they intended. And so, I mean, I think what kind of really motivated me to write the book was how jarring it was as an adult when I start when I became a researcher. You know, when my job became reading what happened. And actually, and actually, looking at the facts, um, which, uh, as the right wingers like to say, facts don't care about your feelings, and <laughs> the facts really hurt my feelings because <laughs> because I I wanted to believe in Canada, I wanted to believe all of the things that I've been been taught, and um, <clears throat> when the facts did not line up with that, it kind of it was like this building gnawing feeling in me, um, and it just sort of it grew over you know the period of maybe 15 or 20 years that this book was kind of gestating. Um, And I knew eventually I was going to write it. It was kind of just a matter of, you know, when will I have the, the time, the resources, the, you know, the capacity, whatever, um, and so yeah, I finally I finally put it together and and I'm glad
2: I did. Yeah. Um I think I'm the only one who's actually read the book. I'm not sure if Joss hasn't. No, I've not had time. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, you, you're not allowed to read because you're in law school. Yeah. <laughs> you can't have fun for no the biggest part for me months. that were gave me the same sort of feeling of reorientation, I guess, was all the stuff in Latin America, especially in the like prior to world war ii because that's an era of history and canadian intervention that you like never hear about yeah i I mean i was i was most of the the i guess main
0: parts of the book i kind of already knew i had i had been working on for years and different pieces but that chunk specifically kind of you know before the second world war kind of especially in that 50 years between about 1900 and, and the 1940s where Canada's aggressively moving into Latin America kind of blew my mind. You know, I mean, how many, I I'm willing to bet that very few people listening to this podcast right now will know that Canada invaded El Salvador in 1934. What? Like I didn't, <laughs> um, but, but we did, you know, and it was like, and it was not a small thing. Now, Canadian troops didn't land. They, Parked in the harbor, parked uh, whatever you do with it. Should docked uh, in the harbor, <laughs> Dropped anchor. I think. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah no. parallel parked beside the coast. Yeah, but uh, I, I mean, you know, um, two Canadian warships docked in the harbor in El Salvador, and uh, the the commander of the of the fleet went ashore and met with the general of the Salvadoran military uh, and discussed the strategy around how to crush. Um, a popular uh, rebellion against the dictatorship uh, that wow. was ruling El Salvador. Um, and with the Canadian troops sort of looming in the harbor in a threatening kind of like, you know, if, if, uh, if necessary, we will intervene. Um, the Salvadoran military massacred 40,000 people. Um, and, and the rebellion was in many ways directed at, and the anger of the rebellion was directed at a Canadian company called International Power, which was based out of uh, Montreal. Uh, And the owner of the company was close friends with the prime minister, Prime Minister Bennett. So when the revolution started, the owner of the company said to Prime Minister Bennett, look, we need some help. The Salvadoran dictatorship, you know, is gonna fall and that's gonna be bad for the company. So, you know, what can you do? Prime Minister sends these gunships, 40,000 people are killed. And then the commander of the Canadian fleet uh, goes back ashore and has lunch with the general that just committed this massacre and they play golf um and and the general says you know praises the canadian uh, military and says you know you guys had a huge morale boost for our troops we wouldn't have been able to do this without you i mean that's just one story and there are so many you know from brazil from nicaragua from costa rica it, it's it's really like it's overwhelming um But yeah, to your point, Elliot, I mean, that's a piece of history that even I really wasn't familiar with until
3: I started doing the research for this book. Tyler, my jaw is like on the floor right now. Uh, Like, I think I I study this stuff sometimes, you know, Or, or just growing up, I always thought that I was really into history. But if somebody were to ask me, what are Canada's foreign policy interventions before World War II, I would only list the Boer War. The only thing that we were ever taught that, I mean, outside of, you know, how Vimy Ridge created Canada and all that shit. Um, Outside of that, I had had no no knowledge of that. Something that I was kind of, even
1: myself, even, again, like Vyas said as someone who kind of thinks that they have a fairly good handle on uh, myth-making in Canada and Canadian history and more particularly American history and the history of the war. um, And something that 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 shocked me to hear you speak about it when you were on uh, Alberta Advantage last week was this sort of (laughs) the sort of great lie of Canada's relationship to fascism during the interwar period. Mm -hmm. And I guess the uh, there's a lot of different directions I could take this in, but I guess my first question would be when speaking to just imagine like whatever sort of a layman, like the, the gourds, the people who, who, you know, watch uh, hockey night in Canada. Canadians. Night. Yes. You know, yes. POGs, <laughs> people of Gourd. <laughs> um, uh, the, these guys. Like what, what would you say is the, do, what do, would you anticipate to be like the biggest misconception that people have about Canada during that period and their relationship to
0: fascism? I mean, I think the, the, the crazy thing is that we have all been taught and and I don't really blame people for, for thinking this. I mean, I did for a long time. We've all been taught um, that Canada fought against fascism, which it did. I mean, that's true. What we've never been taught is that fascism would never have reached the point that it reached without countries like Canada supporting Mm. it. And, 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 you know, I mean, some of the some of the evidence of this is so obvious that it's it's kind of mind boggling that it has been so effectively marginalized from our kind of common sense knowledge of history. I mean, the prime minister William Lyon Mackenzie King went to Germany, went to Berlin in 1937, and met Hitler and loved him. Loved him. There are I mean, so
2: many quotes in the book from Mackenzie's diaries that are just like basically say how dreamy Hitler is. Yeah. And you I mean, let him down him by his own words, which I think is extremely effective. Yeah. You know, I, I
0: really struggled with that section and and I know the publishers were like, dude, there's some long quotes here, but I, I really thought you needed to hear from him. So I just, I, I went, mm-hmm. all the diaries are on like the microfilm at U of T library. So I literally went to the microfilm. I went through, literally read his actual diaries that he wrote and I just like, Typed it all out, and uh, and it's it's insane. Oh. I mean, there's the classic kind of like Mackenzie King weird mystic shit where you know, he's like, he you know, Hitler's eyes are like liquid, and his hands are so soft, and and you know, he's a he you know, he calls him a mystic, he's gonna be a, like Joan of Arc. There's all the weird shit. This is but...
3: the guy who made his
2: dog finance minister, by the way. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> He yeah. had a seance for his cat. You know, I miss having a conception of Canadian history where the only thing I knew about Mackenzie King, <laughs> other than the King-Bing affair, was, yeah, he's the guy who had a seance for his cat. Yeah. That's cool. What a quirky yeah, that country. is cool.
1: I was going to make yeah. a crack about, yeah, like, yeah, he loved Hitler so much that he actually did a seance after the war. You know, trying <laughs> I wouldn't to contact be surprised. him from beyond the grave, yeah. That,
3: that's the, yeah. the first thing that, that just reminded me of. When he told me that he, when he told us that he met Hitler in 1937, is just the way that Neville Chamberlain is remembered in history as this guy who just like bent over backwards for Hitler and how much is written about that, how much lore is written about how much of a coward and person he was, the British prime minister, but our prime minister loved him. Like just, this is all coming to me now. And it's just sitting in a such like, there's so much dissonance and contradiction that I'm trying to think through right now.
0: And yes, like that specific thing is so interesting because, because Chamberlain and, and king they actually meet right before king goes to berlin so i also i also read those sections from his oh. diary and king talks about the kind of the conversation with chamberlain and and the plan there's a strategy going into the meeting and i think you know Um, one thing that's worth noting is that the book that I wrote is not just about listing all the bad shit Canada did. It's also about explaining it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I actually try to explain like what was motivating Canada? Why did King go and do this shit with Hitler? Mm -hmm. Is it just because he was a a wacko? And the answer is no, it's not. Um, The West was perfectly amenable to fascism. It's not just Canada. It's the United States. It's Britain, uh, France. I mean, they were all pretty much on board with fascism. Keep in mind, most of these countries had their own colonies at the time and were effectively fascist in their colonies. Mm -hmm. So fascism was not a wild leap. You know, Winston Churchill wrote letters to Mussolini about how wonderful fascism was and how, how Churchill would have joined him if it was necessary. So they were all okay with the idea of fascism. That was never their problem, which is an important lesson, I think. But where they were nervous was that Germany was a rising capitalist power, um, and, and Nazi Germany, if it expanded, could threaten the central role that Britain and increasingly the United States played in world capitalism. Mm-hmm. That was their issue. So when Mackenzie King goes to meet with Hitler in 1937, he talks it out with Chamberlain beforehand. And the strategy is go in there and convince Hitler not to fuck with the British Empire, go east. Focus on the Soviets, crush the Soviet Union, destroy the communists, do that. We will let you do that. Just don't fuck with the British empire. And I mean, that tells you so much. That little piece tells you so much about about what Canada is and what Canada's sort of core politics are about. Now you can add to it, there's also that, you know, not anecdotally, but kind of like at an individual level, Mackenzie King was himself a racist and an anti-Semite. So when Hitler goes on a rant about how the Jews have ruined all the great German cities, you know, King is not bothered by that. He's totally down. Um, You know, Canada was at the time refusing Jewish refugees Mm -hmm. from Europe because yeah,
1: not a thing that people don't know about nearly enough. I would say I was shocked when I, when I found that out, I can't even remember when I found that out, but Um, that that
0: really gets buried in your uh, social studies class. No, Yeah, yeah. the whole narrative about Canada saving, you know, presumably saving the Jews from, from the Nazis. I mean, man, if you wanted to save the Jews, you really could have just allowed them to come here as refugees. You know, Jews in Canada were desperately trying to get the Canadian government to accept, you know, their friends and family who were trying to flee Nazi persecution. And Canada just refused over and over again. So... Yeah, I mean, the story is so different from from what we've been taught. And, you know, it's an uphill battle because at the end of the day, Canada does eventually join the struggle against Nazi Germany. So, and that's a good thing, you know, like, I don't want to make any, I don't want to be misunderstood. Like, it's ultimately Canada ends up on the right side of history. But the fact that it was so hard to get Canada onto the right side of history and all of the harm that was done because Canada was on the wrong side for so long... Mm. I mean, that has to be part of our our
2: memory of it, or it should be. Mm-hmm. This brings up something that I thought was quite also quite effective in the book, which is that you sort of tie your own family history in a little bit, just like how your uncle fought in World War II and how you know your great whatever level of grandparents were a part of the settlement of the, pra- of the prairies. Because as someone who, you know, my grandpa fought, both my grandfathers fought in World War II and stuff, you know, there is sort of that personal element where it's like, oh yeah, I'm a descendant of history and it's interesting or just nice to have someone who's willing to admit like that they are also a product of history.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you noticed that. And most people haven't really picked up on that actually. And because it is just dropped in here and there, they're just kind of short, quick mentions, but, but I really like, I labored over that decision and went back and forth about it. And, and in the end, yeah, I wanted to kind of just be like, look, here's how I got to where I am, mm. you know? And it's not a, I think part of the reason I did it is that, white people get so defensive, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Yes, you
0: know, as soon as you start talking about colonialism, fascism uh, you know, anyone who thinks that their ancestors may have in any way been connected to some bad shit, they get so defensive. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think we need to, like, I don't think there's any, I don't think that's an appropriate response. Yeah. My, my um, I'm in Canada because uh, my ancestors were working class people in, in Britain. Who fled poverty, right? I mean, because capitalism breeds poverty. They fled poverty, came to Canada because they were promised, you know, a piece of land, and so they did that, and they took up a piece of land. And the piece of land they took up had literally just been stolen. It was in Manitoba. They took up land a few years after uh, the Canadian militia, supported by British troops, had uh, violently destroyed uh, a Métis uprising. Uh, to defend their land. And then that land was given to my ancestors. And that doesn't make me personally a bad person. Mm -hmm. What would make me a bad person, I think, is if I wasn't honest about that, if I didn't acknowledge that, you know, at some level, try to work to right some of those wrongs. So yeah, I I tried to kind of place my own, my own lineage into the book and and for, for better and worse, you know, some of my family members did cool shit, some of them didn't. And that's just... I don't know. That's just how it is. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for
3: putting that in the book. That's not something I read often. Uh, and I think a lot more people need to do that. I also just like the way that you laid out that history very succinctly and concisely. And it's
1: funny to me because I feel like and it's it's such a case of the the pot calling the kettle black. One of the criticisms that you hear of the left, kind of particularly in Canada, at least from my observations on on Twitter and what else is that? that like the left doesn't understand nuance or that we see everything in black and white. But I would say that what you just laid out there Mm -hmm. about how you have the people who are victims of systemic injustice in one country, moving to another country to then inflict more systemic injustice onto another oppressed population in another country. This is really Mm -hmm. the only discussing it in this way is really the only way there can be any nuance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And, and, exactly. in, and in that situation, it was benefiting from theft that had just happened. Yes. And you can't just gloss over that. Even if you're not, the, even if you're not the one holding the trigger, no, exactly. Uh, you benefit from it and are dishonest about what happened. Uh, that's, that's not nuance. That's black and white. Exactly. Yes. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. And,
0: and, and I think too, like, you know, we're often again. The left is often accused of being so moralistic. You know, we're running around canceling people, shaming them. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, that is true. That that exists. Although I would argue that's more of a liberal thing than a left mm-hmm. thing. But um, I mean, my approach, at least, is is not is not to be moralizing. It's more to be honest, right? And just say, look, this is what happened. We got to deal with this. You know, I don't. I honestly don't think that you know, I am a, I am somehow a bad person and I'm guilty because my ancestors were Mm -hmm. settlers. I don't think that's how this works. Mm -hmm. I think that I have a responsibility like anyone to, to try to make the world decent, you know? And, and one of the the ways that that has to be done is to like acknowledge the things that have happened and, and not just that they were things that happened in the past, but that they continue to have ramifications. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that my ancestors took up that land that had just been stolen is part of the reason that, you know, I've had a relatively soft path in my life where a lot of people haven't. You know, maybe the people who were dispossessed of their land that my ancestors took several generations later um, who are struggling. I mean, you know, when Indigenous people are, are struggling today for their land, for, you know, the treaties to be upheld, whatever else, <laughs> decolonization of the country, I mean, there's a reason that they're making the arguments they're making and and we have to acknowledge that history. And uh, that's like an obvious first step to me, Mm -hmm. you know, is to just acknowledge it.
1: This touches on something that's been bothering me a lot in discourse recently, particularly among, you know, other hockey people that I know, but, but just people generally is this sort of obsessive um, attempt to constantly, whenever these issues are brought up, like, determine who is the worst or who's the most responsible or well yeah like these people are bad but they're not as bad as these people and therefore they're good in a relative sense and it's it's very frustrating to me because it would seem to me that you can't really begin to try to solve any of these problems or address any of these issues if you don't have any kind of prescription for how they happen. And so it's important to recognize the role that let's be real here. We live under capitalism. Most people are oppressed in some way, but there are there are oppressed people who play a role in the oppression of other oppressed people. And if we don't start to untangle the relationships that we all have to this, you know, this three-headed monster then I don't really see how we can ever so much as even have a productive conversation about it until Mm -hmm. we acknowledge all the roles that you know different um, sections of in this case Canadian society played in
0: colonialism yeah exactly it's like I said before like it's about being honest right I mean it's like look there are poor white people um you know and there's going to be more by the way in the next <laughs> 10 20 yeah. years like it's going to get a lot things are about to get really shitty and and um you know there are poor working class white people who are pretty fucked over by this system in a lot of ways and at the same time you know they have it slightly better than others who are even more screwed over by the system because because you know racism benefits the system playing working class people against each other uh you know is much more effective for the rich than having us work together. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things I really tried to do in the book that, you know, again, I I think one of the reasons I waited for many years before doing this was I really felt like I didn't want to write this book until I could explain why all of this shit happened, you know, in a way that's deeper than mm -hmm. just like people did bad things, you (laughs) know, Mm -hmm. like I really wanted to say, look, there's a logic to all of this. There's a, there's a reason Canada was built. There's a reason it was built the way it was built by the people who built it. They had certain, you know, things in mind that they wanted to do. They did those things. And as a result, we're all sort of trapped in the logic of, of of colonialism, capitalism, the things that were sort of built into what Canada became. And when you do it that way, you can get away from some of the moralizing, you know, it doesn't have to be about, bad people making bad decisions. It can be about, look, there's a system that structures the decisions we all make. And that doesn't absolve people of their personal responsibility in it. But um, I think it's much more satisfying to kind of understand the big picture than just to have an endless stream of individual
3: people making bad
0: choices. Mm
3: -hmm. And it it avoids the the thing that some history books do of being like, phew, wasn't that a crazy time that we had while back? (laughs) Uh, No, we live. I think, yeah.
0: I mean, Trump is gone, right? So everything's going to be fine (laughs) now. Exactly. I walked into the
1: Sorry, Just to to interject here. This is a funny story. I walked into the, uh, into the weed story yesterday and ran into my old, like anarchist coworker from like five years ago. And he was really excited to see me. But the first thing that he said was just like, Hey, so Joe Biden, eh, all the problems are solved. <laughs> no
3: more problems. 2020. Yeah. We don't have yeah. to record this podcast anymore. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. I thought it was great.
3: Right. So by you laying it out like that, it, it makes it possible that people can understand that they're living in the history. They're not reading about yeah. a history that happened past tense it's happening yeah. and yeah. i think uh i'm very excited to read this book as a result and um yeah i want to ask you about like every, every everything about canadian interventions around the world <laughs> uh because i remember for me yeah lots of contradictions growing up reading about history and then also i don't know joining the fucking federal liberal party like i remember <laughs> one of the first events i yeah. went to it gets uh, protested by a bunch of palestinian activists and i remember being like hell yeah, sweet. They should do that. Also, I'm still going to continue simping for Michael Ignatieff like for some reason because I don't <laughs> know what else to do because I didn't know um, that there were no other rails for me to grab onto because everything I'd been taught taught me that Canada was still ultimately benevolent. Uh, we made some <laughs> mistakes in the 40s with not letting Jews into the country. There's some good Ignatius content in this book too. We're peacekeepers. That's great. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and so... When I would fully hear about things like Canada's intervention in Haiti, it would flip everything, and I wouldn't know what to do after that. And I'm thankful that more people like you have been teaching people about this history. Yeah, and and I mean,
0: you know, I I mean I was the same. Well, I mean I I never had quite the shame of joining the federal Liberal Party, <laughs> and standing for Ignatieff. Man, that was that's that's <laughs> ugly.
1: We really didn't. We really didn't give Vias like we We really need to set aside some time <laughs> to soon to to get into the whole um, Vias is a secret liberal uh, <laughs> conspiracy theory that is uh, floating around Twitter. But life, unfortunately, the movie. we'll have to uh, we'll have to set it aside. We'll for have the struggle time. session so one day. To. I promise yeah. that. Absolutely. I can't wait. We should do it for the Patreon. Just a bonus episode <laughs> on the, the time that you spent with the Canadian Liberal Party. Anyways.
0: Yeah, it's definitely been one of my favorite uh, pieces of Twitter lately yeah. is that revelation. I, am, I, I love the journalist
2: who went after you for that. And they got mad at all of us yeah, for making jokes about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go easy on yeah. them, guys. I love that. that was. So I know. Cool. Anyways.
0: Um, yeah, Elliot, to your point, there is. I did get some great Ignatyev, uh content in the book. I don't know if you guys know this, but Michael Ignatyev's, uh family uh, actually came oh, from yeah. Russia. Right. They were... Um, they were Tsarist nobles. They, they were a noble family uh, in Tsarist Russia. So Michael Ignatius' grandfather was was a count um, oh, in Tsarist Russia. And they, uh, you know, during the revolution, they fled, of course, and they worked closely with a British bank to get their money out, of course. Uh, and they found their way, you know, to Canada eventually. And um, the the middle generation, so Michael Ignatius' dad uh, was an official in, the Canadian government, I think it must've been the Trudeau, I think the, the Trudeau government um, and Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet chairman in the sixties um, used to, used to mock George Ignatiev mercilessly <laughs> whenever they had meetings and he would call him the count because he <laughs> oh, was God. this exiled Tsarist. Yeah. And then of course, Michael Ignatieff is the, the like least, least affable you know the most the most failed politician probably in canadian history but anyways they have that lineage
1: learning stuff. that his grandfather was literally dracula like explaining <laughs> why he looks like that
0: yeah true yeah um, but um oh please oh no i was just uh, to get back to i think i was answering vias's uh, question about the i forget what the question was but i was talking at some stage about kind of like that bigger explanation of history right and what I really wanted to do with this book was, was not just give that rundown of, like, bad people did bad things, but to actually explain why they happened so that when you find out that, yeah, Canada helped overthrow the government of Haiti uh, in, 19, in 2004, it's not a shock. Like, that stuff doesn't shock me mm-hmm. anymore. In fact, it would shock me if mm-hmm. Canada hadn't done mm-hmm. that, um, because now I have this better understanding of, of why Canada exists, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and why it was created and for who. You know, I mean, to a point that we made earlier, I think sort of like when Canada helped overthrow the governments of Haiti, like none of us benefited. I'm not richer because Jean-Bertrand Aristide was overthrown in Haiti. Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. SNC Levelin is. There's a, there's a few other companies that are a lot richer. There's a few, there's a, you know, the Canadian elite are richer as a result of having overthrown that government and, and fucking over the people of Haiti. But I'm, I didn't benefit from it. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't imagine any of you did. So that's part of it too, is like once you start to develop a better sense of what Canada is, how it functions and who it functions for, um, you can actually let go of some of the sense of like responsibility or, or that you're somehow like, I don't feel bad about the stuff Canada did because that ain't me, yeah. mm-hmm. you know? it's That's mm-hmm. not done in my name. I am, I am an opponent of what Canada does in the world most of the time. And so um, I don't have to feel guilt. I don't have to carry some sort of weird guilt thing about it. I just have to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in solidarity with the struggles against that. And there's right.
2: examples of people doing if, good things in this book too. Like there's, at one point, Canada considers sending soldiers to help in the Russian civil war. And instead, the garrison in, I think it was Victoria mutinied.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Which is just like, yeah, yeah. yeah they're they're that's the same local history for Jackson there.
3: Yeah,
0: that rocks. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, it's a super cool moment. Like right after World War One, you know, most of the soldiers that fought in World War I um, are, are really pissed. They're really angry. Um, most of them had been conscripted. They didn't even want to fight in the first place. They were forced to. Um, obviously the war was hell. It was for nothing. They all knew that, you know, working class people aren't stupid. We usually know, you know, at some level, we usually know what's up. And, and so these guys were angry and it's 1918, the war is over and Canada is trying to send more soldiers to Russia to crush the Bolshevik revolution. And these guys were like, fuck this. You know, many of them were sympathetic to the revolution. Uh, all of them didn't want to, you know, throw their lives away to destroy it. So there's actually, there were two or three mutinies, but the one that you mentioned, Elliot, was in Victoria. Uh, it was a French-Canadian guy, I think, started it by sort of shouting, on y va pas, we're not going to go. Uh, and then there's this like mutiny in the streets. And, you know, the, the commanders are sh- firing pistols at their feet to force them to march. Uh, they're eventually marched at Bayonet Point to the docks. It's uh, But it's it's like, those are the the moments where it's you realize that the fact that you're born in Canada or that you have Canadian nationality mm-hmm. does not mean that you're inherently wrapped up in the things Canada does. Mm-hmm. You have a choice. You can you can choose what things you want to support and what things you don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I really respect the choice that those yeah. guys made.
3: Yeah, we're not offending your family when we say uh, our, our <laughs> critical feelings about poppies, for example. That's not yes. about that.
2: And then the flip side of that mutiny would be, obviously like the Mackenzie Papineau battalion that went to Spain to fight the fascists there. But then the Canadian government not only refused to support them, but almost worked to criminalize that, which is another, yeah. this, oh, while yeah. we're talking about world We've wars about and remembrance time. day, I think, you know, the soldiers of the Mac Paps are who we should be remembering.
0: <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, again, it's like, when we go back to the history of Canada in world war two, the most, I, I would argue the, the pivotal turning point moment in the rise of fascism is the Spanish civil war which happens before world war 2 um, you know spain has a democratic government uh, and there's a, an election and a left wing coalition wins it's not a revolution it's not they're not the bolsheviks but it's a kind of you know coalition of liberals and leftists whatever you know imagine a kind of ndp uh, a bit more left than ndp i guess <laughs> but you know a, a sort Could of left <laughs> government <laughs> yeah right yeah i take that back <laughs> that doesn't exist only take Tyler. that back yeah exactly But, uh, you know, there's a left-ish government in Spain and uh, and a general in the army obviously doesn't like it. So leads a fascist uh, coup or revolution um, to try to destroy the government and turn Spain fascist. This is an obvious turning point moment and everyone in 1936 knows it. That's how it's being framed. People get that this is a kind of like lines are being drawn here. Hitler is in power in Germany. Mussolini is in power in Italy. They are both supporting Franco in his attempt to turn Spain fascist. So what does Canada do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And not out of fear, not out of like, oh, we don't want to. It's always framed as though it was like this fear or weakness. No, it was a political choice to support fascism. Canada did not want to see a left-wing government in Spain. And so Canada was perfectly happy to allow the fascists to rise in Spain and kill all the communists. And to Elliot's point, there were a bunch of Canadians that said, fuck that. Um, They organized themselves. They, uh, through the communist party of Canada, they were organized to get to Spain. Canadian government wouldn't send them, wouldn't support them, made it illegal for them to go. Um, But they were, you know, effectively smuggled out of the country, went to Spain And joined the international brigades, which came from all around the world, to fight against fascism in Spain in the 1930s. This was the first, this was like the moment. If you were going to take a stand against fascism, this was it. Uh This is where you stop it before the fucking Holocaust happens. And
1: Canada didn't. This was another shocking thing for me was learning that Canada, not only, I mean, I knew that they didn't support Um, The Republicans during the Spanish Civil War, but what I did not know was that they actually made it illegal for Canadians to go over there and fight on the right side of that war, something that I don't even think America did. (laughs) I might be wrong about that, but that is like, again, once again, just really shocking and really like damaging to the myth of what Canada has been in the world over particularly in the 20th century.
0: Yeah. I mean, like those are heroes, uh, you know, of a struggle against fascism. Those are the, those are, and by the way, those are like mostly homeless men. Uh, a lot of them from the West, a lot of them, uh, you know, some of them from BC actually, um, yeah. You know, who, who sort of were on the, onto Ottawa trek. A lot of them were veterans of the riots in Regina in 1935. And, and they understood that this was a really important fight. Um, and, yeah. A lot of them died. Uh, they were never given any credit. You can almost find nothing about them in Canadian government's <laughs> archives. The military. Yeah, does Where are the statues about these guys? Yeah. Right? yeah. No statues. There's one documentary that's been made about them. Um, it's really awesome. It's, it's weird. It's a weird nineties NFB documentary, but, um, but it's the only, you know, only uh, sort of video documentary about them. Uh, but it's like, these guys got it. They understood. And, um, you know i that's who we should remember on remembrance day those are the kinds of people those are those are people who were canadian but who made the choice to be better than what canada is um and and, and to fight in solidarity with working people around the world for you know, for a better life mm-hmm. to, to not be under fascist dictatorship that's cool that's really impressive
3: yeah so yeah um so Tyler, you have this Twitter account, Canada in the World. It's at Canada in the World, but without an O at the end. And one of my favorite posts around Remembrance Day um, was when you, I don't know if it's from your book, uh, but you talked about how statues coming, like uh, memorials to soldiers for World War I, when they're starting to get built, it was mostly soldiers in World War I who were speaking out against them. Yeah. That yeah, really, it's incredible. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, well, there's a great book by um, Ian Mackay and Jamie Swift called The Vimy Trap, and it's about the way that uh, our memory of World War One has been warped. Um, and and what they do is they go back to the 1920s and 30s, and they spend a lot of time in that moment looking at what was really happening and how veterans and survivors of the war and their families and and everyone was reacting to the the memory of the war. And basically, yeah, they were angry. They didn't uh, they didn't view you know, the survivors of the war as heroes, they viewed them as victims, people who'd been, well, I, I said, I think I said this on the Alberta Advantage, but I mean, there's always this way in which it's framed in Remembrance Day, like they made the ultimate sacrifice. Oh, fuck that, they were sacrificed. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. They, they, they were against their will, sent to fight in this war that meant nothing to them, that had no benefit for them at any level, Many of them died, many of them were shell-shocked, they had you know, permanent uh, wounds and injuries, um, their families were, were destroyed, alcoholism, drug abuse, and so on. I mean, they were, they were sacrificed and um, that's how the war was remembered in the 20s and 30s. So yeah, the, there was a, um, a monument in Vancouver that was unveiled in, or it have been Victoria, one of the two, in 1924. And at the unveiling of this war memorial, a bunch of veterans Ticketed the thing, protested it, and the people who were there, who wanted to celebrate the memory of the war, got mad at these veterans. You know, like, you know, how dare you? This is disrespectful. Disrespectful to whom? themselves. <laughs> it's it's their it's their experience that you are twisting into this sort of politicized, you know, glorious military kind of thing. Um, and that was the theme in the in the twenties and thirties. And that's you know before it was even called Remembrance Day when it was just Armistice Day.
1: Which you know, should have never been changed, be. by
0: the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just on a related note, all
1: yeah. of this, so much of this, um interminable uh squabbling about, you know, poppies or whatever, would be would have been avoided if you know they never changed the
0: name of the damn thing. Yeah, Armistice is mean, something
1: it, worth celebrating,
0: right? Yeah, like something yeah, worth right. But yeah, I mean, Armistice Day. It's like that reminds you that that what we're celebrating is that the war ended. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas Remembrance Day, yeah, it has become this, this glorification. And I know a lot of people don't like it when I say that. Yeah, that's the reason why um, I have
2: such trouble with Remembrance Day these days. I think we talked about this last year on this episode, mm-hmm. like, nearest to Remembrance Day, that I definitely remember it used to be like an anti-war thing. Like mm-hmm. It used to have that element, like, at least. Yeah, like a like definite... it used to have an element of,
1: of a critique of militarism, of an idea that part of the reason we're remembering this is because world war one was, was bad and dumb. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's a, it's supposed to be uh, some element of it is supposed to be a promise that we're not going to do that again, Yeah, which is of course a promise that we fail to keep on a fairly consistent basis, especially in the
2: context of world war one. Like I never remember when I was a kid, remember say ceremonies ever like promoting, like promoting that war. But now, the last couple times I've been to Remembrance Day ceremonies, it was just, it just felt very pro-war. That felt very unsettling to me.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, I think the shift happens, as these things do, it happens for a reason in the early 2000s, yeah. right? Because Canada's at war. And and how do you continue to sell people the Afghanistan war, you know, um, while you have these Remembrance Day ceremonies that are supposed to be about how war is awful and shitty and does nothing mm-hmm. like at some point you know people might have started to clue in that like what exactly is the war in afghanistan about what are we doing? the classic what war are my like...
2: freedoms doing in afghanistan yeah right <laughs> so <laughs> yeah and
0: so that's when it's that's when it shifts is it like when canada has to keep up the The boosting of war and and yeah that's been kind of the way for now almost 20 years well
1: i feel like this is maybe the perfect place to transition into the other thing that we wanted to talk about in this episode which is of course the real politics which is hockey um and uh and you know you mentioned earlier in the episode the the french canadian in victoria who started that Mutiny, and obviously, you know, that is not the only time a French-Canadian hero okay. has been silenced by the arm of Amer- <laughs> of uh, Canadian imperialism. <laughs> but um, I actually do think that this t- does tie in, it jo- all jokes aside, nicely to why it is that, you know, we have you on now on if the plan works out, what should, when this episode comes out, it should be the one-year anniversary of... Ron McLean's infamous apology post Don Cherry's firing, which happened on Remembrance Day last year, which rocks so much. I it was I felt like it was a too soon at the time to really remark upon it that much, but man, just so funny that he got fired on Remembrance Day, like his favorite day about
2: people, like oh that's his favorite day, and it's like Don Cherry was never even a troop. I know
1: it's great, um, but I, you know, I, I do feel like, um, I mean, one certainly, like Ron McLean and Don Cherry played a huge role in this turn of Remembrance Day becoming kind of what it is now. Um, I know, as far as, as far as the Canadian military is concerned, Ron and Don are, or rather, were their chief propagandists in Canada. There was no better propagandist for these ideas that we've been talking about for the past little while than Ron McClain and Don Cherry. And the reason why I I, I don't wanna um I don't want to assume too much, Tyler, but I think part of the reason at least why Ron McClain is a figure of such um such a risable figure for you is because Canada is sort of on the global stage, a Don Cherry that always has a Ron McLean right there mm-hmm. to absorb
0: that kind of criticism and diffuse it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, man. Yeah, I mean, the Ron McLean is is, you know, if there's a, if there's a list in my head of the people I hate the most in the world, um, Winston Churchill, Ron McLean. <laughs> <you know, like, laughs> maybe Todd Bertuzzi. I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Oh
3: yeah. Uh, that, that was spicy uh, take on this show. Yeah. Sorry. I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're um, on the wrong show, man.
1: <laughs> Todd Bertuzzi. Look, Todd Bertuzzi. Oh, like the first time he did
0: something wrong was like last week. So That's fair. But yeah, Ron McLean. I mean, the thing about Ron McLean, the Ron and Don thing, the double act, right. Um, which it is was always Don yes. Cherry doesn't
1: work without Ron McLean.
0: Oh God. No. Have you ever, I mean that when they used to do the grapevine thing with the um, uh, who was it? One of the other CBC anyways, it didn't work. It was, it was always those two. Uh, I mean, Ron McClain's career is, it exists. I mean, look, Ron McClain is a very mediocre person. There's not, there's not much about Ron McLean that is, is in any way interesting. Um, he's, he's a referee. And a kind of a broadcast-ish guy. Um, what Ron McLean did was he made a career for himself um, by being Don Cherry's handler. That's what he did. He he took a man who was totally unfit to to be you know on television in a liberal society, and he made it palatable. He he was able to sort of tame the lion of Ron Cherry, or I should call them Ron Cherry because they have the same, but. <laughs> He was able to tame Don Cherry just enough and, and soften him just enough that the guy was on the air for 30 years. And, and the thing that finally got Don Cherry fired was like not much worse than any of the things he had said for 30 years. No, the
1: climate, the political climate changed. That's what got Don yeah. Cherry fired. What he said, that particular instance was a, it was a version of things he said a, a bajillion times, first of all. And, um, it's honestly not probably not even the worst, close to the worst thing he said. I'm kind of drawing a blank on what my uh nominee for worst thing Don Cherry has said would be. But it's not that. It's probably no. something about um women in locker rooms or yeah, you know, yeah. uh yeah, there's there's all kinds of um he's also said some really pretty disgusting things about players and injuries as well. Um, You know, again, like, unfortunately I don't, um, I prepared readings on Ron, not Don today, but I can, I can tell you for sure that it was not the worst thing he's ever said.
0: No, and probably not even the worst thing he said on air. No. Oh God. No. And, and it was Ron that allowed and, and made it possible for Don to survive as long as he did, you know, Ron sold it to us. Ron mm-hmm. sold it to us by, by um, mimicking a sort of liberal distaste for what Don did. And, and, you know, one of the, and I could, you know, I gotta be careful cause I could go on and on and on about this, but, you know, one of the things with, with Ron McLean that always fascinates me is that people imagine somehow that, you know, that they have radically different politics, <laughs> you know, that Don is this, you know, conservative and, and Ron McLean is a liberal and, you know, they, they you know, viciously argue about politics, but, you know, but they managed to carve out a friendship. First of all, no. I'm
1: not going to, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I do just want to say, uh, if you're looking at a figure in Canadian politics, uh, they're all liberals, all of them. And I realize that that is not always the distinction that they themselves choose, but that is what they all are. There's not, there it the, the differences between these people are uh, aesthetic at best. They all have the same political project.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's certainly no leftists, you know, yeah, exactly. and it's like the way that McLean gets framed sometimes as though he was this kind of left, he was the left leaning and Cherry was the right leaning. I mean, that was nonsense. Um, it's just Hannity and Combs for Canadians. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Was. Like, yeah. And I think it's funny too, you know, um, because Jackson, you mentioned the the one year anniversary of his apology. So I went and, and watched it. And the funniest thing about Ron McLean's apology for the Don Cherry incident is that the first thing he says is that he had a long conversation with Bobby Orr about it. (laughs) God, the the timing of this is so perfect. Isn't it um, incredible?
1: Just just in case somebody
3: doesn't get the context for that, Bobby Orr endorsed Trump like two days before the election. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and
0: like took out a full page ad in some newspaper endorsing Trump. So, I mean, here you've got Ron McLean, whose best buddies are hardcore Trump fans, Bobby Orr and Donald S. Cherry. And we're supposed to believe that Ron is this sensitive liberal. I mean, Ron may have slight disagreements, you know, in, in like the nuances from Don Cherry, but Ron's politics are not that different from Don Cherry's. And what he did was he sold us on the idea that he had a real objection to the, the, the things that Don Cherry did. If Ron McLean had a real objection to the politics that Don Cherry put out in the world, he would not have spent 30 years mm-hmm. making sure that Don Cherry was on the air and able to say his piece. I mean, you know, Ron McLean was the ultimate enabler for what Don Cherry put out there. And in many respects to me, that is so quintessentially Canadian. Mm-hmm. This, this mask, this liberal mask that is put on you know, Justin Trudeau does it. Uh, even Stephen Harper did it. You know, I, yep. I know, again, he's a conservative, but to your point, Jackson, I mean, there's a certain consistency here. And Stephen Harper would put on a kind of liberal mask uh, and, and say the right thing while putting forward policies that were deeply conservative, you know, to the right of conservatism. So I think Ron McLean, in many ways, is that reassuring voice to Canadians that, no, 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 no we're the nice guy. We're the nice guy. We, we don't say the bad words out loud. We <laughs> might think them, but we don't say them,
3: right? Yeah, the only fundamental disagreement between those two is that Ron wanted Don to talk for 30 seconds and Don wanted to talk for 35. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's about that's it, the yeah. only real <laughs> disagreement that, that, that ever really came up on that show. Uh, and yeah. thinking about your episode of An Albert Advantage that I just listened to yesterday, it's almost like Ron McLean is the peacekeeper yeah Yeah. yeah
1: 100 totally. percent yes and and what what like what I think I try to get at sometimes when we talk about the hockey media in Canada but particularly this very specific thing a coach's corner that happened uh, for for 30 some odd years uh, at the tail end of the 20th century into the 2000s is that it really is like the closest thing Canada has to the CNN panel where the red guy and the blue guy yell at each other for three minutes and then cameras go off and they shake hands and have a beer together. And it's like, you know, ultimately I, I have, I have sympathy for people who, you know, we all have people in our lives who, who we care about, who are friends with us, who we have political disagreements with. And a lot of those people, I mean, certainly in my case, I consider a lot of them kind of grandfathered in. Um, but ultimately, like, if you have real disagreements with people, it's going to come up earlier than 30 plus years in, in the form of a very, very half-assed public apology on television, where yeah. where you don't even get into the reason you're apologizing until two minutes in. And, you know, the,
0: the, it's like, they might have Ron and Don might have, and I remember when they argued about the Iraq war in 2003 um, on coach's corner. Right. And, and it seemed at the time, I, even at the time, I thought there was a big argument there between them, um, you know, and, and Don wanted Canada to join the war against Iraq and Ron wanted Canada to wait and see if the United Nations endorsed a war against Iraq before joining the war <laughs> against Iraq. And at the time, somehow, I, I believe that to be a really big distinction. You know, now uh, I'm less of an idiot and I recognize that there's very little distinction between those two things in either case you're talking about an aggressive war against uh, another country that would inevitably invariably cause mass destruction mass death which it did um, and would ultimately only serve the interests of corporations that would go into that country and take advantage of you know the post destruction boom and the contracts that would be handed out by the occupying army which is what happened and ron just wanted it to be done with un sanction ron just wanted it to be done a bit nicer a mm-hmm. bit less it, with a bit less vulgarity a bit more paperwork. with a bit exactly if that doesn't and, and if that
1: doesn't sum up the the meaning the degree to which there is a meaningful <laughs> distinction between the two i don't know what does yeah
0: no. exactly and, and that's precisely why the ron and don thing has been so central i think to uh, kind of understanding where canadian political culture is at they framed our understanding of like the range of possibility because there was no voice on that panel that could say hang on a second is it possible that we should fuck off and have nothing to do with an invasion of Iraq at all. No one said that, you know, at no point in the entire history of the Afghan war at no point was there any discussion on coach's corner about the possibility that maybe the war was a bad idea. It was never even an option to be discussed. It was just varying degrees of to what extent are we gung ho about these wars? And that framed the, the sort of political debate in Canada so that it almost started to feel like there was no possibility for a more critical position. That's, that's Ron McLean's legacy, you know, politically in Canada is to make it, you know, to, to narrow the frame of the debate. um, And yeah, I mean, and we're just getting started. I got it. oh,
3: it just keep so going, buddy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it, I
1: would say too to anyone who wonders why we do a you know hockey and politics podcast and why we talk why we talk about these things on what is ostensibly supposed to be a hockey podcast. Well, there was a moment in two thousand and three where on the nation's most watched hockey broadcast there was a long discussion about Canada's involvement in Iraq. So like these things are connected and I I feel sometimes I feel like, you know, I I'm purposefully being made to feel like I'm taking crazy pills by saying that these things are connected because, you know, for whatever reason, most people in hockey like to pretend that they aren't when, when they're, when they're connected so obviously, like if you're going to talk about Canadian politics, you have to talk about hockey yeah it yeah. is the, the two are inextricably linked to one another you you cannot pry one from the other in this country it's like football in in america but it but but to 10 times the degree because of the way that canada uh, hockey is so singularly part of the canadian identity in a way that i would argue like uh, other sports just aren't in other countries maybe maybe um like association football in some yeah. European it,
3: Gunders, Yeah, but. It's like football if CNN and Fox News were not watched by anybody, that everything was funneled into the, a football broadcast. Exactly. Yeah. Like yes, Canadians don't watch the news. They watch Hockey Night in Canada, and this mm-hmm. stuff gets transplanted in there.
0: And it's not subtle. It's not subtle at all. I mean, as recently as, I guess it would have been two seasons ago now, um, in the, when, when Washington uh, was in, in the cup finals, Ron and Don went to Washington covering the Stanley cup finals. And I would, I will never forget the panel. They did the coaches corner. They did from the arena in Washington with a general of the U S military. Mm-hmm. Well. And they spent the entire time. I uh, choose my words here. Uh, <laughs> they, they spent the entire time. They, they uh admiring, the uh general um and and talking about how wonderful he was and what they were doing don was beside himself don was like starstruck that's Um, probably the
1: happiest day of Don's life
0: oh god it was a thrill for him that
1: was like his version of trump getting down of the hamburger party like he was (laughs) probably just so driving the the truck
0: yes and driving the truck yeah and on the trump point, um ron this is during coach's corner ron says oh boy you know here we are uh, in washington and i gotta tell you you know uh yesterday uh donald and i went and, and we went we saw the trump rally and uh and you know uh don was just beside himself that was just a such an exciting moment for him to to see uh, donald trump uh, as you know uh, yeah uh,
1: <laughs> that's wild i did not know about that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah, completely yeah.
0: unsurprising
2: yeah, was... but still it's a shock
0: Yeah. And so for anyone that says hockey isn't political or the coach's corner isn't political, I mean, you can't get more political than that. So, and, and there's Ron McLean, Ron McLean doing the heavy lifting, you know, making sure that we all know putting it out on the national broadcast in the Stanley cup finals. That you know, here's Don. He just saw Trump. He was so excited. And Ron, by the way, is beaming like the Cheshire fucking cat. He's so proud of his friend. He's so proud of what happened. You know, like a like a happy father or like a son who took his grandfather to the like. It's so sickening. And and you know, I mean, the point in all of this is is for me is to say we are kidding ourselves if we think that Ron McLean is anything other than. Uh, you know, a tool for the right. And in some cases, the mm. far right, mm-hmm. he, he's not even a liberal in many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he does the heavy lifting for the right and the far right. Um, and, you know, honestly, I, I think Ron McLean, his day is going to come. I, I don't know when exactly. And I don't know what, I don't know what it'll be, but before, before the end of Ron McLean's career, I don't know guys. I just think that, um it's going to go down in flames for him. I, I just think that um, there's probably a lot we don't know about Ron McLean that we're going to find out at some point. Um, maybe not. I don't necessarily, like, I don't have like, there's no secret. I don't have a secret thing that's going to, but I mean, well, I guess what I'm getting at is people is, don't
1: inter- uh, change their internal nature overnight. as Yeah, you're saying.
0: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and this is a man who, you know, again, I, I said at the top, like a kind of mediocre guy who built this career where he became the center Ron McLean became the center of the Canadian hockey world, right? Yeah. Not Don Cherry, who was always this mm-hmm. kind of, you know, colorful side character thing, but Ron McLean, you know, how many, any any person gets mentioned on the broadcast and Ron McLean can immediately tell you who their dad was, what junior team they played for, where they grew up. Ron knows everyone. He's like the center of the web. His whole,
1: his whole deal is being, is going to some. Random like nowhere town In northern Ontario And being like this is the This is the old barn where Alistair fuck used to You know (laughs) You know Yeah exactly like that's his whole That's like to the extent that there's a Content to anything he does and I I, You know I have to be I'll be honest Here like I have a I have a bias here In the, the fact that I also just do not Think he's a very good broadcaster and some people would would disagree there's with a level me. of you know, mockish maw-
2: vitality that he really channels that some people mm-hmm. like and i cannot imagine jackson standing for
1: yeah no i cringe. i'm i'm, it's I'm I, was, I was one of the few people yeah. who even at the time was was i think pretty vocal about my belief that george strombolopoulos was more enjoyable in that job and that's something that i i enjoy that and yeah. by even though a lot of people disagreed with me um I, I think that honestly, in a lot of ways, I actually think that that whole fiasco was a bit of a canary in the coal mine for where hockey has gone since then. But um, I digress.
0: Yeah. It was an opening to something that could have been different that was closed off. Right. And I mean, the thing that I come back to with Ron, uh, you know, is like, okay, so he's the center of the web. He knows everyone. He knows everything. There is like, this is a man with a huge amount of power. He has to be right. Like in the way that in, in small kind of worlds like the Canadian hockey world is, if you're positioned the way Ron McLean is, you, you wield a lot of informal power. And let's be honest about what the hockey world is. Like it's a dark world, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we, we know this, we know that it's a world filled with like horrific racism. And I, you know, the stuff that we get, the stuff that bubbles to the surface uh, is, is the tip of the iceberg, yeah. you know, go to go to any junior hockey rink in the country and, and, you know, you can be confronted with the horrific level of racism, um, hazing. Yeah. And other, and other creepy sexual stuff. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, sexual misconduct yep. by players, not sexual nearly assault by players. People, people
1: don't know, like they have no idea. The, no clue. The degree how dark to it which, is. Like the, you know, junior hockey for a time was, was not unlike the Catholic church, just moving, uh, people around from one area to another area who, ha- who had done some very questionable things. I get people yeah. in my DMs sometimes telling stories sometimes secondhand sometimes not that are not my stories to tell but yeah junior hockey at least for a time I, I I'm not gonna say that it's necessarily still like this because I don't know but for, for a time for a long time There was a lot of very, very creepy, very questionable stuff happening with regards to um, I mean, we know the abuse of minors because of the um, the hazing stuff, but the sexual
0: abuse of minors as well. Yeah, the Graham James stuff. There's the you know, there's the the Bill Peters type stuff. Right. Like there's all kinds like it's a whole range of different kinds of abuse, different kinds of trauma. You know, trauma that is, like, inflicted on players, but which they then inflict on, you know, people, other people, women that live in the town where they play. It is such a dark underbelly to that world. And anyone who's in it intuitively actually knows it, right? Anyone who's been through it at any level knows it. It's not talked about, but it's understood. And, and back to Ron McLean for a second. Ron McLean knows everyone. Knows every barn. Knows every father of every son of every brother if, if Ron McLean for 30 some years has been that deeply connected to the Canadian hockey scene, what is, what is Ron McLean known about all of these things and, and chosen not to talk about, you know? um, I don't know, obviously I, am not in his head, but I just think there's so many, there's so many red flags for me about Ron McLean. Um, You remember when he used to host uh, hometown hockey with Tara Sloan and Tara Sloan couldn't talk because Ron would just have monologues the whole time. Like, (laughs) do you remember that? I mean, it was, I I felt for Tara, like she could barely get a word in edgewise. There is such an ego to Ron McLean. There's such a sense of like of his own importance. I just think there's just red flags galore uh, around Ron McLean. And, and uh, I think he, he represents in many ways to, to me, he is kind of the dark uh, horse of, of Canadian hockey culture. And I, and I think there's a lot wrapped up in him. And then that for me reflects back on Canada and the fact that Canada, like Ron McLean, Canada presents this nice face to the world. Um, You know, this kind of smooth appearance, you know, peacekeeping, helping other countries, foreign aid, it all seems to check out United nations, you know, Paris accords, all seems to check out. But, but, you know, for, for me, there were always little things that pierced the armor—the Haiti thing, or, hmm. you know, or Honduras, or, or Somalia—when Canadian troops tortured and killed teenagers in Somalia. Little things that were like, "Hang on a minute, that doesn't feel right." And of course, the more I investigated, it turns out that the bad stuff was actually—you know—that was the rule; it wasn't the exception. And you know, in many ways, I kind of think Ron McLean is like a, a microcosm uh, of that.
3: Well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, there's still.
0: a bit
1: of a <laughs> bit of a that's yeah, great, great. that's great. Um, uh, going on a
3: limb there, but uh... Uh, so Tyler, one of my favorite things to ask a guest um, because it brings us back to nostalgia mode. Um, and by the way, Elliot described this podcast as "What if somebody from 2004 time travels to 2020 and still wanted to talk about the Canucks?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is very, very good. Um, is how did you become a Canucks fan? And uh, like from the top. And also, um, I know that you live in Ontario and I just, uh, I'm, I'm always curious about how people outside of Vancouver become Canucks fans.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard being a Canucks fan out here. Cause you know, the games like sometimes the games don't start until 10 30 mm-hmm. and like 10 30 my time. So, you know, it's like during the Willie era, it's like I'm staying up until 1, 1.30 in the morning so that I can watch <laughs> Joe, Joe LeBate La <laughs> and Cramarosa. You know. Perfect.
1: Yeah, those are some guys.
0: But, uh, yeah. Anyways, um, yeah, my Canucks thing starts... Uh, so I, I was born in Winnipeg, um, but we moved to uh, Richmond, actually, when I was, um, I think, five. Uh-huh. So I actually spent three years of my childhood... Three really, really happy years of my childhood. And formative. Yeah, in Vancouver. Too. Yeah, formative yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, like that was Petri Strico. I remember, I think Petri Strico was uh, one of my favorite, I think, oh, wow. Petri Strico. Yeah, that's no. that um, sounds right. Sounds about right for that era. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would be like the early 90s yep. or, or even late 80s. Yep. In any case, um, uh, so I, I cheered for the Canucks for those years, uh, but then we moved back to Winnipeg. And uh, all right, my... back to
3: Winnipeg. Can you, can you... So, yeah,
0: it was back to Winnipeg. It was like that was kind of, I, I locked in at that point. Um, you know, I or got hardcore about the Jets. Um, and, uh, and everything yeah, and was, was good, right
2: after that. And everything <laughs> right? was good
0: forever. Forever. There was never any. And then, yeah, basically, I always say that like my first uh, relationship was with the Jets. And then when they were sold, it was like my first time getting dumped. <laughs> And I was devastated. I was like, I was a kid. I was probably 14 years old or whatever. I, you know, I used to listen to the games on the radio and cry if the jets lost, which <laughs> I cried a lot. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, So when the jets were sold, I was like, I was like, fuck this. I just stopped watching hockey. I don't remember the late nineties of hockey. I don't, I don't care. There might've been some Colorado stuff going on, but I don't care. I don't know. I just didn't pay attention. And then I only started paying attention to hockey again uh, when the Siddines were drafted because I was like, that's weird. They're twins. Um, <laughs> and I, something about it was interesting to me. So I started watching and then, you know, it's obviously like right from the start, there was all the the narrative about the Sidine sisters and all of that stuff, which I, I mean, I was too young to really say that I, I hated it at that point. I was still pretty young, but but I wasn't into it. I was kind of not, not sure what to make of it. And um, I basically started following the Canucks to follow the Sedins and like really quickly, I got really invested in their story and I got invested in the fact that they were getting so much shit that they were so different as players. They were so interesting as players, but always taking all this shit. And um, so yeah, that was kind of how it started. And I, I really think my Canucks fandom was was so much about the Sedins I to the point where I was like when they left and especially because of how bad things were were looking I was like I wonder like am I gonna stop am I gonna lose I I haven't but yeah I was I was feeling that for sure
3: could you could you actually just like walk us through that article because I know it's been three years probably since you published it right yeah, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, pretend, pretend I'm somebody who's like, who the fuck are the Sedin's? Why is it so, uh, <laughs> like, why are they so interesting? Yeah, they're they're twins, but, um, yeah, if you have the bar conversation with me, convince me, yeah. own me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I will be able to, but yeah, I, I mean the the Sedin's thing, you know, we all probably know hockey is is like a deeply, deeply. I mean, I don't know what, what the right word is, but there's like a macho culture in hockey that runs really deep, right? And and it has some versions of it that are worse than others. Like, the, you know, it's, it's got its really bad sort of viciously homophobic, you know, versions. But it's also got the sort of softer, but I think still kind of harmful things around kind of like playing through pain. And, and there's just so much about Canadian manhood um, that's wrapped up in, in hockey, right? And so the Sedins were this challenge- to traditional ideas of what it meant to be a man, you know, in the Canadian sort of narrative of it because they um, you know, were Swedish. How dare they uh, be <laughs> Swedish? They were Swedish. The worst were, thing you could spoken. be in hockey. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Um, they were Swedish, they were soft-spoken, they didn't hit, they didn't fight, um, you know, they, they weren't brash, they weren't macho, uh, you know, they just kind of played and they played this really interesting, different kind of way. And, and so they became the targets of so much, um, so much hate, so much sort of macho uh, mockery and everything like that. And, you know, and I think a lot of the times, you know, that kind of shit is, I mean, it's, it's reflective of the, the ways in which we, uh, each of us, you know, if we are, if we are men struggle with what it means to be a man and, and how to, and how to be a man in the world. And, and it's not easy. Because, because the shitty things about masculinity, the violence, the, the bullying, the mean spirited stuff, um, it's really pervasive. And it's, it's hard to know how to still be a man without being those things. And for me, the Sadines were like role models for how to be a man without being an asshole. And because, because they, I mean, the Sadines were men in the sense that they were adults, they were grown ups, they were mature, they were responsible. And yeah, right. They treated them, they treated their fans with respect, they treated their teammates with respect. By extension, that meant they treated themselves and each other with respect. They held themselves with such grace, you know, when Jamie Ben and Tyler Sagan go on a radio show and giggle about. Oh, you know what do they do together in their bedrooms at night?
1: Yeah, you know the mm. sedins were or just or Mike Milbury above with it. the uh, with the Thelma and Louise. Uh, yeah, that, that yeah, kind of horse shit. They dealt with a I lot of that it. stuff, and they dealt with it like. It's also worth noting too that you know when they entered the league, it was it was everything was so different from how it is now. Yeah. They were really trailblazers in the sense that you're talking about. They really were trailblazers. I think in a way that a lot of people don't really that doesn't really register with people um, yeah. because they were drafted in, I want to say 99 yep. yeah. and it was a, it was a different game back then. And it was a different oh, culture, yeah? even as bad as the culture still is. It was, it was tremendously different. Like the, the kind of stuff that was directed their way. It's not how people would say it now. That's for sure. No. And they, they really bore the brunt of that for, for a long time and I think it 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 helps partially to explain also the sort of uh character and attitudes of Canucks fans as well and why we're we kind of tend to be a bit different a cut from a bit Mm -hmm. of a different cloth from the rest of the league but
0: yeah yeah I think so I think that I think the Sedin's had a real impact and and I think the Sedin's made it possible for players to uh, be different, you know, and I don't want to overstate it. I mean, uh, you know, all those years of, of taking shit, you didn't, you know, if you were a player, you didn't want to take the shit that the Siddines took. So, mm-hmm. you know, you might distance yourself from it, but, but by just kind of taking it and, uh, and never sinking to it, you know, they, I mean, they never did. They never, they never, um, you know, called out other players in shitty ways. Uh, they never threw their own teammates under the bus. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, they, Stuck with – uh was that dude that played on the top line under Willie with them? Magna? Oh, can you... uh, Magna, yeah. Chaput. I actually meant the other guy, but yeah, Chaput. Magna. Chapu, yeah. that's who I was yeah. thinking of, yeah.
3: Tally, the original I mean, name of this podcast was almost going to be Chapu Trap House. <laughs> <laughs> I would get a T-shirt. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they never, ever threw their teammates
0: under the bus. They never – sunk to that level they always rose above it I mean their answer you know to those things was always well that says more about them than it says about us and I mean I love that right and that gave me as a as a like a person watching this a spectator to all this it gave me a a, like a language Mm. and an approach a method for how to deal with it myself which I dealt with it too and I still do on Twitter we get that kind of crap all the time on Twitter and, and I absolutely learned that like that's the way to handle it. Yeah. it is, is to rise above it. So One of my
1: favorite Sedin moments that, um, that has been completely memory hold to the point where uh, I don't think you can even find a clip of it anymore, which is really too bad. But in the series against Calgary, I believe it was in the series. I'm almost certain against Calgary in 2015, Brian McGratton skated up to Daniel Sedin and just really brutally like cross-checked him in the neck and dropped his stick. And Daniel Sedin just reached down and gave <laughs> his stick back and skated away. And I was just, I was completely in awe of <laughs> what an absolute yeah. boss move that is. Yeah. To to just be like, oh, it seems like you dropped your stick here. Like they really did not, um, uh. for, for, for how much people tried to get under their skin, the only time I've ever really seen it Seen them give anything back was that one time Daniel Sedin fought Leo Komarov. Um, yeah, like uh, which it's is pre- pretty astounding for how it'll long. It'll break A couple were. of times. Yeah. <laughs> well, Henrik Sedin. Um, one of my favorite one of my favorite like NHL records is that Henrik Sedin has the most games played without a ma- major penalty in mm, mm. That fucking rocks. That's really cool. Yeah. Pretty crazy yeah. So that cool. they never won a Lady Bear. <laughs> I guess it's because of all the hooky hooking p- penalties, probably. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, like the fact that they that they, you know, I think that's part of the reason they were so they made people so mad was because they didn't respond. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, Brad Marchand, you know, punching Daniel in the face in the Stanley Cup Finals, and and Daniel just taking it and refusing to give in, refusing to give Marchand the satisfaction of punching him back. Mm-hmm. Like that's you what said, he wants. yeah, yeah, it's like that's a boss move. That is so. It's like you know what the other person wants, and you refuse to give it to them. Um, like, I just think that's, that's strength and like, that's real strength. And to me, it's like, okay, that can be what it looks like. Maybe to be a man, I don't have to be an asshole. I don't have to be mean to people. I don't have to be a bully. I can be strong in a different kind of way. Um, like I'm so grateful to the Sadines for showing me that. I don't know if I would have learned it otherwise. Yeah,
3: man. Just reading this article again, like the emotions I'm feeling, I think the best way I could describe it is that in my life, there's so many contradictions of the things I'm interested in and also the, the person I'm trying to be. Mm-hmm. And this article just is so niche for me about, uh, like it just cuts through those contradictions that I think about. Um, that I, I just love how much of this is about just masculinity in your own life. This is not a hockey article. This is an article about who we could all be and what a great example there is here. It really is like my favorite piece of hockey. Be writing out there. I, I think I just like don't know how to how to say something interesting by like through my
2: gushing about this piece. Well, I wait for the uh, book length version of this, which will be dudes in the world, uh, Sedinery, and the I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: one of the uh, one of the things that I think, and it's a, it's an important distinction um, to make, but one of the things that we sometimes talk about on this show, maybe not. Explicitly addressing, but it's always sort of there in the background is that it, it, there aren't a lot of people in hockey that share our politics, if any at all, but there are a few that share our values, if that makes sense. And these are two different things. And mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, it's part of the reason why Jason Bochford and now also the Sedins are people that we talk about so much as people that are worth imitating. And the reason for that is 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 that is it's that sharing of values as opposed to politics specifically, but just the idea that if you behave that way in the world, the world will be better. And yeah. particularly in, in the Sedin's case, I think it had a very profound impact on fans and on the on the game itself too like I I really don't think that you see I mean Elias Pettersson is so weird like he's tremendously strange yeah he's he's odd duck and I'm not sure and and he like he's getting such an easy ride now through Vancouver in a way that you know that 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 never would have happened without the city and it's like nobody worried about I mean, nobody with half a brain anyway is worried about him being too small or worried about him being too weird or anything like that, because I think collectively all of us said, you know, like we've seen this before and, and as a result, I mean, the play on the ice certainly doesn't hurt, but I feel like the Sedins played a huge role in, there being the space within hockey culture for an Elias Pettersson to just step into the NHL and be amazing. I don't think that happens without, without somebody there like Henrik and Daniel first to take the beatings both on the ice and uh, in the press.
0: So, yeah, I mean, what you said about like values, I think is so spot on. I mean, for me with the Sedins, it's like, you can, it's it's obvious from the way they carry themselves that um, these are people who respect other people. Mm-hmm. The Sadins respected people and and you know, on camera, off-camera, I mean you, you heard it from anyone that ever had any dealings with them. I don't I literally have never ever in my life heard anyone say that a Sadine treated them badly. No. Like they were they they carried themselves with such respect for other people, and it's like fundamentally that's the world I want. Like yes. that's what the, that's at the core of my politics. That's at the core of what it is to be on the left for me is a world where people treat each other well and with respect and dignity. And the Sudans may not have been, I'm sure they weren't leftists. I'm sure they wouldn't have shared a lot of my politics but they basically acted the way I want everyone mm-hmm. in the world to act. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, they were really, and, and it's uncommon in hockey. You know, I mean, I've got f- lots of friends like that, but you don't see it in hockey very often. And especially then you didn't see it. So it was really, it was really cool. And it like, I mean, uh, this is a strange, maybe piece of the story, but when the Sadeen started, I had this crew of friends. Um, uh, yeah, I was I still lived in Winnipeg, but I was cheering for the Canucks and, and it was West coast express uh, era. So we watched the games. We went to Minnesota to watch some of the games against the wild and, I was in this crew of friends and, and frankly, they were a bunch of assholes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I was, I was like too young to really under, like, I didn't, I couldn't individuate and differentiate myself from it. I was just sucked into it in the way that you get sucked into a culture. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I, I was a bit of an asshole, uh, as a result of being friends with them. Um, you know, I didn't treat people very well and I it's, it's a stretch. It's an exaggeration to say that the Sadeens helped me get past that, but, At some level, I give the Sadeen some credit for being this kind of like in the background of my life, there was this quiet example of how I could be different. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I mean, I eventually said, fuck you to those friends. And I stopped hanging out with them and I became a better person as a result. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it didn't happen overnight, but it's, it was like a long process of figuring out how to be more respectful to people for me. And it's like the city's were always there as an example of it. You could always ask yourself, how would Henrik or Daniel deal with this situation? And it would probably be good. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, when they retired, there was definitely a piece of me that was like, you know, this is like why I cheer so hard for the Canucks is because I, um, what the Siddines represented is so important to me. Yes. Yeah. And I wanted it to get, I wanted so badly for it to get rewarded on the big stage. Right. Which is why obviously the, the Boston series is like still, I'll never be over it. I'm still mm-hmm. angry about it because, because the Canucks were the best hockey team and the Siddines were the best players and yeah, the best yep. people. I didn't, I <laughs> didn't
3: care if Sammy Salo didn't get a cup. I didn't really care <laughs> if Luongo didn't get a cup. It was about the city for me. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But that, that whole contradiction thing and talking about the friends going down to Minnesota and stuff like, yeah, I grew up with a lot of meatheads <laughs> and it took me a long time to like be able to feel like I can hang out with other people. I don't have to act like them. Uh, and the Sidians are, were, yeah, that quiet role model up on the shelf that was like, those guys were doing it at such a high uh, caliber as, as, as people, as just high performers in their own career. Like, why can't I do that? And so that last year of the Sidians, and especially that month around their retirement, um, was just such an interesting month in my head to be thinking about my own masculinity and and how I treat other people, um, I'm <laughs> I, I I absorb every single story about the cityans and how good they were as people. I didn't I didn't even watch their highlights that month. I just would pour through those stories, stories like them standing in line or like waiting in line at White's at the Kitzbühel White spot for their table when like they would <laughs> offer like, hey, we'll just give you a table now. I was like, no, 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 we're gonna <laughs> stand in line, yeah. like stuff yeah. like that. Um, and I remember, like, I, I kept my jersey in my car for like a month because I was like, in case I run into them, I really want. <laughs> yeah, jersey. fair enough. Yeah. I remember I I've even always had just a wanted dream. to interview them. Oh wow!
0: I've always wanted to interview them. I I, um, I always in the back of my head had this thought, like, you know, if I could just sort of get, if I could just connect with the right person that knew them, so that I could like sit down and do like this like long. Deep interview about hockey culture and you know yeah. and, I mean it never happened. Maybe it'll happen someday, but yeah, I mean I I, I felt the same bias. Like I just that whole month was it was super emotional for me. Yeah. Like, And I I wept during I think at least one maybe two of their last games. Mm-hmm. It was all just so it was all surreal and and the, the fact that it went to overtime and that the Sedin's won it in overtime. I mean it was just it was like it was magical. nuts. You couldn't have drawn and, you couldn't have drawn
3: up a better story.
0: Yeah. Like, no, I mean, if someone wrote it as a script, it would be like, what is this, mystery fucking Alaska? Yeah. Like, that's how yeah. the world is. Yeah.
3: yeah, I went to that last home game alone. Uh, like, I just spent so much money on a ticket <laughs> on that one ticket just to go alone, and I cried, like, the whole game.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sam still occasionally mentions uh, that, like, that's the only time he's ever seen me cry is at the Seed's <laughs> last home game.
0: Yeah, we, we lost something in losing the Sedines, but, uh, you know, I mean, for me, like fiasi said about masculinity like that's the thing that i that i'm stuck with there is hockey culture creates tries to create this thing where there's only two options you can be a man or you can be uh lesser any of the yeah any of the other words i use are words i wouldn't say right but it's like those are your two options you can be a man or you can be some version of a girl and and being a man means you know being chris pronger or or, or brad marchand or, or some kind of jerk. And, and the Sadines were like, no, you don't have to be that way. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we don't yeah. like, and there's really no excuse, you know, and the Sadines provided an example and there's just no excuse for, for being that way. And I don't give myself an excuse anymore. And um, to your point, it's like, if they could do that at that level, with that degree of scrutiny, with that level of frustration, they might've felt if they could still hold themselves with that level of respect, then sure as fuck I can. If somebody, mm-hmm. you know, cuts my line on the bus, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Well, I
1: think we, um, we, to we're running like way over time here. So there, we did get a voicemail according to Elliot. Yes. Do you want to play that for us, Elliot? Hey guys, it's Riley. Can we get a fucking hell yeah in the chat for
2: Bolivia? Hell yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know what to say. Uh, <laughs> I was meaning to call in and talk, but, uh, Yeah, fuck yeah. That that rocks. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I have to apologize to Riley for taking this long to get around to playing his call on the show. Um, Just completely forgot, Ah, and then I think the next one was the Dan Murphy episode, so it didn't really make sense to drop (laughs) it in there
3: getting dan murphy to talk about louis Arche, <laughs> yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah that would have been dan was very gracious i think tried to get him to talk about bolivia maybe <laughs> a bridge too far even for him and how uh nice and accommodating he is but that's actually a perfect note to end on because you know this was the foreign policy episode of uh, of roxy fever so um yeah no no hate mail this week just uh send your love to evo and the boys tyler where can the good people find you
0: uh well you know i'm, I'm on twitter and uh so Le some, yeah some spicy takes there uh lushipster shipster that's my that's my twitter Very handle redded, and, um... uh... <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: i mean it's a little embarrassing but it's like i started it ages ago
3: and fair enough <laughs> no. it's stuck Ellie underscore shipster yes and then at yes. canada in the world for your uh for your book account, really?
0: Yeah, the book account is at Canada in the World. It's, uh, it, the, the O in World is not there. It's just W-R-L-D, which is really dumb, but it was like a character limit or something. So mm-hmm. it's at Canada in the World. And uh, the book account is like, I don't, I only use it for, um, you know, specific posts about name foreign policy. Uh, once in a while, I put together kind of like a thread about some piece. So I did the thing about Remembrance Day. I did, I did one about El Salvador and um, a few others, and I'll keep doing those and... Uh, yeah. So, so depending on which part of the interview, you know, you liked more, those are the two accounts.
1: <laughs> that, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, where can people get the book?
0: Uh, book is available at uh, the Fernwoods publishing uh, website. And I will say this uh, it's, it's quite pricey. Yes. Uh, unfortunately that's, that's a, that's a real tough part of this, but um, I can get discounts. Uh, I can offer a discount as an author so you know, if you want the book but sixty dollars is too much, which I totally understand, uh, just send me a DM at either of the two accounts, uh, and and there is the possibility of a discount.
3: Uh, so that's yeah, amazing. Keep that in mind, Tyler, yeah, listeners, uh, it's I'm sure it's an amazing book. I can't wait to read it. I think it will be a perfect like reframing your understanding of the country you live in. Um, So I would totally DM Tyler for that.
1: Yeah, and I I lied, actually. This week, you can uh, direct your hate mail to at Ron McLean HTA. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Yep, thanks, everyone.